Alrighty friends, we're back for another one and as always you're joined by your boy Heavy Days here from the Upside Down Library and we want to give a massive shout out to our sponsors who help make the show happen. As always a huge shout out to Seeds here now, your number one spot to get all the hottest breeders and all the latest drops. A guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. That means if you finish a harvest and you're not stoked with the results, hit them up. They'll make it right. Who else offers such a quality guarantee? Seeds here now. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. Likewise, huge shout out to Copert Biological Systems, your number one pest and predator company. If you have aphids, get the Afiparm. If you have spider mites, get the Spidex Vital. I promise you guys, they're the best in the industry. The Spidex Vital, it's got proof of predation technology, meaning you see the predators turn orange in front of your eyes. What more proof do you want that they're working hard for your garden? Get some beneficials in there before you're up against the battle. I love releasing them regularly. Shout out Cope at Biological Systems. We appreciate you so, so much. Likewise, huge shout out to our buddies at Pulse Sensors. Whether you're running a single tent, a single room or a multi-state operation, Pulse Sensors are here to help you get the best harvest to date. Helping you to monitor all the variables you may not be consciously considering like VPD, PPFD, humidity, temperature, so much more. Check them out. They've just released the Pulse Hub, an integrated unit to help you track all parameters and inputs via one central hub. It's been super popular. You should check it out, guys, before it's sold out. A huge shout-out again to Pulse Sensors. If you want to get serious, get a Pulse. Huge shout-out to our newest sponsors, Organics Alive. No matter what level of expertise you have, they have a range of products that are going to improve your next grow. If you're an organic grower and want to take things to the next level, check them out. From veg to bloom to transition periods, they've got products that cover all the bases. Shout out Organics Alive. And last but not least, a massive thank you to the Patreon gang. You are truly the lifeblood of the show. If you would like to get early access to upcoming episodes, unheard exclusive Patreon episodes featuring the likes of 707 Seedbank, Bodie, Mr. Bob Hemphill, Mean Gene, Trichome Jungle, the list keeps going on and on. We've also been giving away genetics on our Discord. How good does that sound? Shout out Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. On this episode, we are joined by an infamous man in the NorCal scene, creator of the Mendo Perps and one half of the infamous Breeders Syndicate. We're thrilled to have Not So Dog on the show today. Here to talk all things genetics, ethics, philosophy, and so much more. I think you're going to really enjoy this one, guys. Let's get into it. Alrighty gang, we're back for another one and on this episode we are joined by an absolutely notorious man in the scene, the originator of the Mendo Perps and one of the hosts of the Incredible Breeders Syndicate podcast. A big warm welcome to Not So Dog for joining us today. What's up? How you doing my friend? A long time coming. Great to have you on the show. It has been a long time coming. It is good to chat. How you doing today? What have you been smoking on? What have I, I actually have been smoking on a a plethora of things. Um, we had a little like uh, a little breeder syndicate gathering uh, not that long ago, and 
I got a ton of samples from friends. Um, so I'm actually mostly smoking on a bunch of good friends weed. Uh, Blue Dream, Trainwreck, Death Star, uh, Lumpa's Headband, um, some Sour Diesel, some uh, some weird sativas from Bodie, uh, a bunch of good stuff actually. Uh, much much more variety than normal, so it's been it's been welcome. Oh wow, that sounds like a beautiful smorgasbord. There's a bunch of stuff I want to ask you. I guess first thing that comes to mind, what what was like the most standout? from all the things you tried it doesn't have like not necessarily unique or maybe it is unique but what just has left a really lasting impression on you um you know i uh it's it's people are gonna laugh but i really enjoyed my buddy pax blue dream uh oh yeah it you know some some strains get a bad name because they get overproduced or they get grown like for on commercial levels and stuff um, but the reason why it got popular in the first place was like grown well. It's pretty incredible. Um, so I, the Blue Dream was really nice. His train wreck was also really nice. Both were like very classic and took me back. Um, my uh, my buddy High and Lonesome, his Shoreline, uh, which is like very '90s to me type of type of weed. Um, you know. I don't know. There's there was just some really nice cushions. Uh, there was some weird sativas there and stuff. So I like I almost enjoy the weed more when I'm home, because when you try to have some kind of gathering like that, I don't know about you, but like once you start smoking six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve kinds of weed uh, in short duration, you sort of like lose the ability to like uh, generate what you think of each individual one. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It starts to become like a haze. <laughs> yeah, where, you know, when I'm home, I could take a couple of bong hits or, or smoke half a joint of something and then start like, you know, doing some chores or whatever. And I'll get a real good sense of like what kind of journey that that herb takes me on. And and you can do that over some time and you can kind of look at each individual one without it being like, uh, you know, one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Because once you're in sort of like a weed festival event like that it's mostly what you you notice what tastes good and what cuts through the other ones yeah but it's certainly a cumulative effect right uh so but yeah i mean it it was nice that we did that you know uh we we used to do it you know i mean uh, you went to one you went to a few of them um we used to do it around the emerald cup in santa rosa just because everyone was gathering uh and so we would have these, you know, get togethers, we'd rent a house and we'd have some get togethers at night so people could come and just shoot the shit and enjoy themselves. And then COVID kind of put a lid on that um, for a few years, unfortunately. So then this uh, winter, we pulled off like a very small family based one where just a bunch of friends brought, you know, and we just cooked and ate and and smoked and chatted for a couple of days. And it was super nice. Yeah, man, that's I, I remember the event in um I think it was actually 2019. I, I was able to come to that last one before COVID hit, and definitely a who's who event. I think uh, even myself, who admittedly I don't get quite as starstruck as I used to. I remember being at that party, and every time I turned my head, I would be like, "Oh my god, that's such and such," you know, "That's rude boy," and yeah. just just pe- people you weren't expecting to see. And I guess it brings up an interesting question. You know, a lot of people, including you know some of the real heady guys 
feel like the Emerald Cup is not really what it used to be. Do you think these small-scale events are like the way forward? Well, I would say that um, they've always sort of been there, right? Uh, so the difference, the difference obviously is like the Emerald Cup is a, a commercial-style event. And that's obviously going to change with like the rules and regulations and what they allow and what they don't, right? The party that I was just describing is is more of like a traditional in my mind, like harvest festival, where it's sort of invite only, uh, and uh, you, you, it's not. It's just basically like a gathering of people. I mean, there used to be a guy. Um, he's still around. Uh, that would throw a, a very similar kind of uh, of gathering um, at his house 20 years ago, 20 couple years, 22 years ago, something like that, maybe. Um, and he would rent um, a nice, a really nice house in Healdsburg, which is uh, in northern Sonoma County, and just have a bunch of friends gather. And that's actually where I first met uh, CSI. Uh, it's where I first met uh, Chip from uh, Royal Gold. Uh, although he didn't have Royal Gold back then, I met Shaw, Shaw Bud there, um, you know, and then you talk to old timers and stuff and there's been harvest festivals going on since the seventies and eighties in Mendo and Humboldt. Um, <laughs> so I would classify that one as sort of like a, just an informal gathering of friends where you have food and drink and smoke and you just basically chat and get a chance to, to hang out a bit where the Emerald cup is sort of like, uh, a commercial event, mm. you know? Yeah, definitely. It doesn't mean it can't be cool because you're still gathering a bunch of people, but you know, 215, the medical era was sort of like a, a lot of those harvest festivals like Emerald cup was sort of like a gray area swap meet in the sense that you could rent a booth and you could kind of do whatever you wanted. You could sell dabs, you could sell weed, you could sell t-shirts, you could sell stickers, you could advertise your farm, all these different things and all you needed was, you know, a little bit of tax work and, and some, uh, and some money and, and a medical. And now that, uh, now that it's fully legal and regulated, um, everything has to fit into those rules. So a lot of the people and a lot of the activities that used to go on at Emerald cup no longer fit within the rules. So it changes it. Yeah, definitely. And I, I want to loop back on that point, but I want to ask you about a few of the strains because you, you know, you, you just mentioned like some of the all-time greats in what you were able to sample while you were there. So I'd love to loop back. You mentioned your friend, you know, brought some amazing train wrecks and Blue Dream. Is that um Santa Cruz Goat Farmer? It is. Yeah. Oh, man. I've only just recently because of, you know, yourself and Matt uh, being sort of put onto him and I love it. It's like, uh, you know, I, I say this very regularly, but like, I think if you live outside of America, it's maybe not an obvious point, but like the rest of the world is not burnt out on Jack Herra, on Blue Dream, on Trainwreck. You know, we're all still very much like yourself enjoying what is arguably some of the best genetics out there. Did you find yourself personally ever getting burnt out on those strains or was it more just the community? Um, you know, so there's, there's a couple ways to look at it, right? Is that, uh, whenever anything becomes a, a big deal and train wreck is kind of important because it was like one of the first named clones to really get grown in Humboldt by a lot of people. Uh, and so what happens is it, in a lot of times is that these strains, for whatever reason, they get popular. There's a demand for them. People start growing them. 
people start growing more of them. And then in the beginning, most of it is really good. And then as more and more people get into it and they go bigger and bigger and you know, like it gets, the quality gets, gets not as good. So getting some like eight pound outdoor blue dream, uh, that was grown commercially might not be very good. Right. And most people are going to be encountering blue dream in that way. Right. Um, but getting like a little two, three, four ounce indoor plant grown with love or a greenhouse plant grown with love by your buddy, um, you probably will see the qualities that led it to be popular in the first place. Right. And so most of these things, whether it's train wreck or, um, blue dream or grape ape or Urkel or, uh, you know, um, granddaddy purple or OG, or, you know, go through the list. It's like they have their moment in the sun and then it becomes easier to move something else for the market. So the market shifts, but it doesn't mean that that strain is any less nice. It just means there's something that's easier for people to move. Right. And so then, you know, people go with what, uh, with what, what the craze is, um, in the probably Oh four, Oh five, Oh six, I would say every indoor grower in Humboldt and Mendo for the most part was probably bumping out some kind of purple because the market just had an insate in, insatiable demand for it. Uh, and that's where granddaddy purple and Urkel and Mendo P and all those things became kind of famous um, because they went, they went easy. They went for top dollar. And then 98% of people dropped them when the sour and cush era hit. And then a bunch of people dropped sour and cush when the Skittles, you know, cookie era hit and so on and so forth. And then the purple era came back, uh, the last three, four years in California. But instead of being those classic strains, it was hybrids of them. Like, you know, it was gelato or this or that, or, you know, it's not purple enough. And so uh, I think that most people don't want to hold on to any any strain that they're not currently making money off of for the most part. Uh, and so as a result of that, you know, there's strains that are very popular that tons and tons of people had at one point that either become lost or only ended up holding in a few hands. Because people had to hold on to it when it wasn't popular or wasn't popping because they cared about it. And it happens over and over again. You know, uh, it really does. Yeah, it definitely goes in cycles, doesn't it? Well, you know, to give some kudos to uh, the Santa Cruz goat farmer, I would love to know, you know, you've got a vast experience growing a range of different strains. So I'm sure even if you haven't grown any of them specifically, you'd have a good idea. Out of the sort of train wreck lines he's put out, which one sort of grabs your eye? The one that impressed me the most, and people will laugh, but is uh, he had a train wreck blue dream hybrid. And the reason that people have a hard time with uh, train wreck um, is because long before we knew or used the word terpenes, right, we would we would try to associate tastes and smells with like certain strains. Right. So, um you know, it has that strong, you know, terpenaline that like, you know, you know, people back in the day used to be like, oh, it's got those train wreck. It's got that train wreck nose. <laughs> yeah. Or it's got that. Yeah. It's got that Jack Herrera nose. Right. Um, and now we know that that's terpenaline uh, and terpenaline is can be a really sharp, really astringent uh, flavor. 
And it has, I would say, it's one of the more controversial uh, aromas in cannabis. Uh, because some people really enjoy it, and there's a large percentage of people that dislike it very much. Uh, so it elicits strong opinions, right? Well, he's got this train wreck blue dream where the sweetness and the softness of the blue dream really mutes a lot of that astringent sharpness that comes from the train wreck side. So you can still taste the terpenaline. But it's way more sweet and way more on the back end instead of just being like, you know, uh, lemon cleaner sprayed in your mouth or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't it's very difficult. Like you if you ask CSI, you ask Matt or you ask various breeders, it's very difficult to mute terpenaline, which is why people get frustrated with it, because it is such a, sh a sharp, forward, astringent flavor. Right. Um, and so I was pretty impressed by that. And, you know, generally speaking, uh, various people are going to have different favorites in the community and they're going to have different things that they gravitate towards. And there's things that I have that I love intensely that other friends of mine don't like very much, even though they acknowledge it's really good weed. It's not their preference. Uh, so People like uh, Pack, you know, holding on to Trainwreck and Blue Dream and some other classics because they love them and they and they want to keep them safe and they want to keep them around. Uh, and then they grow them with love and care. Uh, that's good weed usually. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And uh, I remember just when you were talking about, you know, people getting sick of it, I remember a quote I heard from Tom Hill when I was with him. He took a smell of a certain bud and he was like, no, oh, Trainwreck where all flavor profiles go to die. And uh, I remember that highlighted the point. But just uh, to ask a sort of related question to the side, when you were listing those strains, you know, Blue Dream, Trainwreck, maybe even like, you know, Calio and Skunk, and as we stepped away from those towards, say, the more Cookies and Skittles era, you helped me to realize in the moment that some of these more popular strains were definitely more hybrid, maybe even a little sativa leaning at times. And we've sort of moved a lot more towards indica leaning. Would you say that's coincidental? Or do you think as a community, as a whole of a consumer base, people are sort of just more inclined to indicas than sativas? I would say it's accidental. In fact, um, you know, uh, so there's a couple ways to look at it. When you, when you're, when things were primarily outdoor, okay, um, first of all, like most of America started on sativa because that was, you got free sativa seeds in the weed that you bought because the weed was from Thailand or it was from Colombia or it was from Mexico or it was from wherever, uh, where everything was sativa in the beginning because that was the access that you had. If you got uh, indicas, it was hashish, right? And that didn't come with seeds. Um, for the most part. So sativas were way more prevalent in the country at first. And in the, especially in the 60s and 70s, um, it was primarily all people had. And then, you know, in the early to mid 70s, there was some like very small amounts of people, like maybe like Steve Murphy up in the Pacific Northwest or different little groups that started having a little bit of indica. And then um, I think like old timers and, and friends of mine that have like lived in Humboldt their whole life, like CSI have told me that they, 
you know, it seems like late seventies is when it started first really spreading around Mendo and Humboldt. Okay. So you got to realize you're starting with almost a hundred percent sativa. And then in the late seventies and eighties, people start injecting some, um, some indica into it. Right. And fast forward a bunch. And if you're going to grow outdoor in the sun, you'd way rather grow some sour diesel or some blue dream or something like that uh, versus like runts because that sativa stretch, that ability, like, you know, most things that yield big have to get big. And in order to get big, you have to have a certain amount of stretch and you have to have a certain amount of structure involved. And so growing some squat little indica that's only going to get three or four feet tall isn't going to do very many people very much good. So what people started doing is they tried to, they started trying to blend the two things, right? Like, can I get the high and the flavor from the sativa and the structure and the stretch, but can I get those dense buds on the indica and have it finish in the climate that I'm in? Yeah. And that was really the start of it. And now I think with Instagram and with pictures and all that, and with the way hype works, um, you know, most, most stuff gets popular and it has very little to do with its growth rate or anything like that. It's kind of whether or not it just catches a fire. And then it has this time in the sun for a minute, I guess. Right. So I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's more like a conscious thing where people prefer because, I would say that the vast majority of people smoking today probably haven't smoked real train wreck or real blue dream or real Urkel or, you know, real Trinity or real things that were popular 20, 25 years ago, just because that's a long time ago now. So you can be smoking gelatos and runts and cookies and this and that it's a lot of what is popular is what's accessible. Like, can you get it? Yeah. Right. Hugely. And that makes a huge difference. So it's in, in a way it's like, I don't know. I don't know if people's preferences are what they are or it's just what people's access is. Yeah. That's, that's a huge point. I, I definitely really try to echo to people in Australia that, you know, even just your ability to even rate weed in the grand scale of things is very much defined by what your exposure is, right? Like if you've never had a truly elite clone, can you really say one of your clones is truly elite? You know, I try to talk to people about this and it's a difficult concept for sure. Before we get too far deep though, I want to quickly ask you though, do you think then based on sort of what you were just saying that it is possible that maybe we could get a real sativa sort of strain to become popular? Because like that's my dream. Like I've, I've totally become like this diehard sativa head and I really want to share it with other people, but it feels like such an uphill battle and it got me to the point of where I'm like, is it, is it just me? You know, like maybe I just like sativas and like most people don't. But I guess based on what you're saying, like these days it's a bit more about catching fire and the, the photogenicness of the plant. Do you think it is possible? Yeah, sure. Of course. It's hundred percent possible. Uh, I mean, so if you, if you were to go back and you were to think about how weed is distributed, right. Um, before medical really existed, it was all private dealers and you would have to go and, and, and you get maybe however many dealers you knew you had to figure out what they had access to. And that was all you could get. Right. So it was very much like when you were coming up and, what kind of connections you had. And then as, as medical came in and stores opened, you could actually go in and look 
and buy a wider variety of things. But those store owners weren't trying to provide the widest, you know, categories for their customer base that they could and educate them. They were trying to buy nice weed for cheap so they could make a big margin. And that still happens to today. It's, it's, there's not like, um, you know, there's things that, that maybe could be popular if you, but you have to actually like, how are you going to get a hold of them? Yeah. Right. They're not that easily accessible. Like if you were to walk into, I don't know how many, when you were visiting here, I don't know how many dispensaries you walked into. Um, but you know, getting pure sativa is not easy. So if you can't get it, how are you going to know if you like it or not? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I have to be honest, you know, it was actually a, a bit of a sad sight to be seen in the three or four dispensaries I did visit. I uh, I picked up some Connected California. They offered a strain called High Rise, yeah. you know, and, and they're one of the companies that's touted as doing a bit of a better job than most. And, you know, Ted seems to be like a passionate guy, so I'm happy to support him. And I tried this bud and, and I honestly thought the Turt profile on it was mold. Like, I don't think the bud was moldy, but it smelt like mold. It was so off-putting and definitely wasn't a sativa. And it was the only thing I could find that was a sativa. And I sort of thought, man, am I seeing like the dying remnants of, of dispensaries? And I'd love to get your take in general. You know, what's your thoughts when you walk into the average dispensary? Is it different to mine? Is it similar? Uh, that. It's, I mean, I, it's pretty political, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but I get, I would say that, um, the reason why you were probably pretty disappointed is because over the course of the last number of years where you've talked, you know, on this podcast, you've been able to talk to a wide variety of people that love weed um, and that have some pretty nice collections and you've been able to probably try and smoke a bunch of those people's herb, right? Yeah. And friends of theirs herb. And that sort of starts informing your palate and what you like to smoke. And then you go into a dispensary, which is, is it, you go from labor of love to capitalistic and that's a big drop, mm. right? In quality. And it's even been a drop in quality from the medical era to the legal era. Uh, strangely, uh, legalization might be the only time that they've taken a black market product and made it worse and more expensive <laughs> than it was in the previous in the previous situation. Um, because in in the 215 era, right? To give you an example, if you had a medical card, and you were growing medical cannabis, where what you were supposed to do with it, right, was sell it to dispensaries. Yeah. Okay? Because that was the, the legal outlet to get to patients. Right? I mean, you could obviously have your own patient network or whatever and pass out free cannabis and all that type of stuff. But, like, that's, that's how the system was supposed to work. Right? So, as a result of that, you didn't have to have like, basically I could grow a 12 lighter in my garage, for instance, and harvest that. And then with my medical card, go down to people I knew in various dispensaries and you could buy that weed directly. So dispensaries were able to get a lot of different people's herb, mm. right? And you didn't have to have a big business. You didn't have to have regulation. You didn't have to pay all this money. You literally had to have a medical card and you could do a dope deal. 
Okay. So in Southern California, there was this enormous train of people that would come up to Humboldt and Mendo and Sonoma and up here and buy indoor. And then they would take it down to the, to the, to the Bay or take it down to Southern California to San Diego or LA. And they would sell that indoor for a premium to the dispensaries down there. So as a result of that, you know, there was still a wide variety of, of good and bad, but there was some really, really, really good growers that their weed was, was getting dried, right. And cured, right. And, and, and a week later, somebody is buying at a dispensary and it was really nice. And now with all the layers of legalization and the commercialization, I would say um, that most legal weed is a lot closer to what we I would call beasters than it was the best of the 215 era. Yeah. Um, and actually beasters from Canada, you know, do you know what I mean when I say beasters, obviously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So beasters for people that don't know is in the 90s when you know, Canada loosened up a bit before America did, and people started growing large amounts of commercial indoor, uh, and then, you know, shipping it for higher prices and smuggling it into America. And so that was sort of America's first taste of like warehouse grown, large scale commercial indoor that was kind of grown okay. And I think that modern legal is much closer to that than it is some somebody that you knows eight or 10 or 12 or 15 lighter, um, doing a really good job and caring for their, for their weed in, in a different way. Oh yeah. Hugely. Everything you just said is, is really bang on. And, um, I, w- I will preface, you know, I, I don't want to hold the dispensaries to too high of a standard. It's uh, it's going to be hard to keep up with, you know, some of the, uh, the people whose weed I've been fortunate enough to try, but exactly what you said. I remember I, I was able to come over, for one trip before outright legalization occurred. And I remember I um, the first dispensary I went to was in Colorado. And I got some, admittedly, like even by today's standards, some really nice Gorilla Glue and uh, some nice forum cut. And I remembered, and it was what you said, you know, it obviously had come from someone's small hobby grow in nearby that dispensary who'd put a lot of love into that grow. You could really see it. And... Um, I guess to have seen that progressively sort of slide downhill is is more the sort of part that's a bit of a bummer. It raises the question, do you think the current system will ever allow for really high quality weed to exist or just the scale at which you have to operate to be able to exist in the legal climate is like sort of prohibitive in a sense? Oh, it will. I don't have a necessarily a time frame for it, but it, it absolutely will. Um, I have I have faith in that part of it just simply because you know um i'll I'll put it to you a different way like uh, when i was younger um it was basically hippies that were interested in fully organic and a higher grade of food right um and there would be these very small like crunchy like co-ops and stuff that had specialty foods and organic apples and this and that and everything else and then what really made organic food like available in America and every grocery store and what blew up whole foods and some of these big, big companies is there was a bunch of wealthy people that were like, you know, I drive a European sports car and I have Italian leather boots and I get my suits tailored and I'm shopping at the same grocery store as everyone else. Isn't there a higher grade of food I can buy? Isn't there nicer stuff? Isn't there like a better grade? 
And there was. And so it was really like hippies sort of like um, coalesced organic and, and a, on a bunch of like back to nature people and stuff. But it was sort of like a very niche thing for a while. And then it went mainstream. And now you can get it in most most big chain grocery stores have an organic section, you know, some places, uh, you know, or large organic stores. And I think the same thing will happen with weed is that right now we're just in that first legalization where they're like, okay, here, you should just be happy. You can have it. Right. And the quality kind of sucks, but eventually what's going to happen is quality is going to matter just like in lots of other industries. And you're going to start to see people willing to pay more for certain things, but the market is going to have to get educated on what's important. And I don't exactly know how long that's going to take. Um, so I can't really say that it's like around the corner or anything like that, but just looking at how other economic stuff in America works, I see no reason why there shouldn't be everything from kind of crappy weed, but it's very affordable for people and really high end stuff, sativas, stuff that yields tiny stuff that, but has a really great effect and someone's willing to pay through the nose, um, for something that took 16 weeks and didn't yield very much because it's that good. Yeah, certainly. It's interesting because it does raise this point that I've spoken to a few people about, but notably I remember a conversation I had with Bodhi where he sort of said, you know, you, you do get a lot of people, especially online, who will really throw out their support for this sort of stuff and say, you know, if you grow this 16-week plan, I'll pay for it. But, you know, sadly, you sort of find that when push comes to shove and you've got the product there and ready to take orders, you know, the the fanfare can sometimes dry up a little bit. And uh, I think this is not a, a new sentiment. It exists in probably a lot of industries. But, like, hopefully, you know, eventually people do really sort of, um, you know, what is it? They, they pay with their wallet. They vote with their wallet. And uh, we can get some of those sativas back, especially with the advent of people like you know, Tom, who wants to put out this, you know, mythical haze clone that he finds, you know, maybe, maybe that'll kickstart it all. I mean, I will say that on an, on a negative note that I've never been more worried about the diversity in weed than I am right now. Uh, and that while I do think that those kind of markets could develop over time, it's going to be really important for people to hold on to as much of what they have during this time that really is rough for a lot of people because before, and you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, that I have, I have a pretty big collection of, of old strains that I like. Right. Mm. And you know, I, it's very idiosyncratic to me because it's not like I had this idea that like, Oh, I'm just going to hold on to all this special stuff. And then one day it's going to be like, it's going to be rare and important or whatever. I basically just was willing to, because I lived in Mendo and I had space. I was like, if I like this plant, I'm going to hold on to it. Right. So the collection is very much based upon my preferences. And, but that it's also expensive and it's time consuming and it's a huge pain in the ass. So it has to be funded by something. Right. And when times were a little easier, some of these large collections and some of these various things and some of these sativas you're talking about and some of the stuff that's unpopular, it has to survive. Otherwise, later on, people might not have access to it. You know, because it 
you know, it, it can't be everybody else's responsibility to hold on to stuff that's unpopular until it's needed again. Because that's how every conversation you've ever had about what happened to that strain comes up. Mm. Yeah, roadkill skunk definitely jumps to mind. Yeah, you know, in the 90s, skunk terps were very, were very prevalent. Um, and now that, you know, there's analogs of it, I think, sour diesel. And, and, you know, there's various plants out there that have elements of it. But in the sense of that pure rank like skunk spray, um, it's kind of become a little bit of a lost terp. Um, and like I was talking earlier on the show, literally every indoor grower I knew uh, in 04, 05, 06 ran some purple when it was super popular and demand was high. And when it turned into sour diesel cush time, 99.9% of the people dropped it. And a few people like CSI and, he, and a couple others here and there, a few rare people held it. But it went from everywhere to almost nowhere. Um, and, you know, as you can well imagine, imagine having, you know, 40 moms or 80 moms or 120 moms, right? Uh, and trying to keep those things alive and healthy and cloning them and starting them over and growing them up and getting them healthy and then cloning them and starting them over because obviously they get too big and like what kind of facility you probably should have in order to like keep all this incredibly important history and 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 you know uh dna alive and mostly it's being done in garages yeah yeah and it does raise an interesting point because the the question comes to mind like you know, how do you compensate someone for that effort? Because when you sit down and do the math on it, a lot of physical hours of labor, and then, you know, you can factor in electricity costs, mediums, all that sort of nutrient. And not everyone's necessarily a breeder. You know, not everyone can necessarily just bang out a seed line with these old strains and get compensated for hanging on to them. And so it does sort of raise this question of like, how do you think as a community we can thank the preservationists like yourself who maybe don't have a seed company or don't have one yet maybe and uh how how yeah what how can we pay them back besides just you know an, a verbal thank you which is obvious well i mean the real issue for me is rather than getting any kind of praise or thanks you know uh the more important part we'd just be making sure that a lot of these things just stay alive so that future like you know future generations can have them i don't even necessarily mean future generations like 50 years from now i'm talking like eight years from now five <laughs> years from now yeah you know like because once it's gone it's gone and and as as i'm sure because you've talked to a lot of people by this point you know when you get into kush and you get into sour diesel and you get into all these different things that maybe became popular in the 90s it's really hard to figure out even just 20 years later, exactly what happened or what cut is the right cut or what is this or that or whatever. Right. So, um, I think that when, when it comes down to it, different people that are, that are collectors figure out different ways to make money so they can keep the collection. Because what I think is it's, it's mostly the people that hold on to things, not entirely so, but for the most part, they do so out of love, right? Yeah. So, you know, and different people might love different things. 
So they might be more inclined to hold on to these things than others, right? So you have to have like a diverse group of people. Like we were talking again about my buddy Pac. Um, he loved that train wreck and that blue dream enough that he's held them since he first got them in Humboldt a million years ago, right? Or think of some people like Bodhi you were talking about that have some, you know, that have some rare sativas or some other friends that might have some rare indicas or, you know, CSI that has, you know, or myself or, you know, keep naming different folks. But, you know, whether it's a seed company or whatever else, a lot of these people, they hold on to it at the core because they want to keep it alive. And you end up sharing it with people that you also hope will keep it alive. And that's the frustrating thing about trying to hold on to a collection is some of the stuff people will be like, oh, you're a hoarder. And some of these things like the headband or different things I've shared with friends so many different times, it's unbelievable. But most people don't want to hold on to them unless it's like currently popular. Yeah. Right. Like everybody, everybody wants fire sour diesel when sour diesel is popular. But what happens when? You know, like the market shifts to purple or the market shifts to this or the market shifts to that. Who's going to hold on to the thing that's unpopular and it's going to take up space and time in their growing. And so it's not so much like um, it's not so much the credit part that I give a shit about. Uh, it's more about like um, that that kind of stuff surviving, because who wants to be in a world, and this isn't a diss against gelato, but who wants to be in a world where like 95% of the, of the cuts are gelato, cookies, cushments, or, you know, some kind of popular thing within the last three or four years? So you don't want to pigeonhole yourself. Well, I mean, and you know, you even know, like from, like from a genetics perspective, there could be stuff in some of these old strains that we don't even know how valuable it is for years. There could be terpenes, there could be, there could be mold resistance, there could be bug resistance, there could be valuable stuff besides the fact that it's cool wheat and that you enjoy smoking it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, just sort of to re relate back to a topic you just touched on, like when we're talking about people who hold on to strains that are really special, I do remember... Uh, in one of the early, must have been 2016 Emerald Cups I went to, I got a nug of Trinity off you. And I remembered distinctly when I when I smoked it thinking, oh, you know, this is really interesting. It's, it's not like modern strains. It, I just remember thinking it's very skunky and very hashy. That was sort of the, the lasting impression I got from it. I'd love to hear your rundown on the Trinity and sort of the backstory from your perspective. Was it pretty leafy what I gave you? Yeah, I think it might have been outdoor, maybe. Yeah, so that, the Trinity is a pretty cool story. Um, I'll leave out some names, but the basic story is that there was a guy in the glass blowing scene from Eugene uh, in Oregon area, and he uh, traded some glass for some weed and um, ended up finding, finding seed, and it popped, and there's a, there's a group up in up in Oregon that it sort of started to spread through. And so when I first started coming out to the West coast, um, as a, you know, as a hippie kid, I would hit events like, um, reggae on the river, uh, in Humboldt, or I would go see, you know, Jerry band shows, uh, in the Bay, or, you know, I started going to see, uh, Oregon country fair. Right. 
And Oregon Country Fair is, um, you know, it's sort of like it definitely is a is a very old school hippie gathering that goes on right outside of there. And most of those people that are involved go. And so I started making friends up there. And most of my friends up there were growing things like the the snow, the Trinity, um, a, a, a different super skunk, um, you know, some various various things of that nature. And so it was kind of a strain I was familiar with because most of my like uh, most of my friends that I was making up there then had it. Right. And all we knew about it was it was bag seed from Trinity County in California. Okay, And then through a variety of situations that went on, almost everybody lost it from the late 90s to the early 2000s. And it was just one of those name strains that was just gone. And. I kept trying to find it. And every time I found it and someone would give it to me, I would grow it and it wouldn't be what I remembered. And people would be like, and I'd have to tell them it's a fake. So fast forward, literally like 15 years or something, 10, 12 years, whatever. And we CSI and another friend I won't name up in Humboldt um, and a guy in Oregon, maybe we stumbled upon this thing. So I get it back and I grow it. And I believe there was a there was a bad fire that year, the first year I had it. So that that those outdoor plants really went through hell. Uh, and I had this jar and I started showing it to various friends of mine and everyone got real excited and thought it was it. OK, it's it. It's back. We have it. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's back. And then the next year I grew it and it didn't go through hell it didn't get beat up by the weather. There was no fires and it came out way nicer and way chunkier in all honesty than the previous year. And then about half of my friends, it didn't jive with their memory anymore. And they're like, now I'm not sure it's it. And so you have a group of people that some of them think it's absolutely it. And then some of them think maybe it's it, or maybe it's like an S one, or maybe it's a close relative. I can't say for sure. Right. And what it goes to show in my mind is that even if you're, even if you had something back in the day, even if you grew it any number of times, like how good is old memory? Right. Uh, and because, you know, you have this thing where it's like, whether it's the, you know, how good is a 20 year old memory? Are you going to be able to identify something beyond a shadow of a doubt after multiple decades passed? And let's be honest, um, when you had it, you were in your early twenties and you were taking a bunch of psychedelics and you were, you know, a, a, a partying hippie and this and that, and your skill set was way different and the growing style was probably different too. And so I deal with this with a lot of cuts because people have gotten really interested into lineage and everyone wants to claim that they have the real deal old school and it becomes difficult to ascertain and people get into battles over whether or not it's real or whether or not it's close. Trinity is an example of that because it sort of fell off the face of like people having it for a long time. And sometimes those strains can just exist with one or two or three people in some little group that isn't online or isn't connected. And so for the connected people, something might be gone. Right. Yeah. But. You know, it's kind of the same thing with like uh, what happened with that with that A5 in Holland, right, where for a long time people thought it was lost 
And then they discovered that there was this guy that had these sativas that Neville had gave him. And one of them ended up being that A5 cut. Yeah. But he just was tucked away doing his own thing. Right. And the Trinity, it seems like that's kind of the case with it, where it kind of tucked away and it hid um, and it wasn't being passed around very much. And so I'm not going to sit here and say it's 100 percent it because who am I to say so? But I will say that even the people that think it's not it think it's a very close relative or an S1. And I love the weed itself, which is the most important part is actually liking the cannabis itself. Yeah, fully. And admittedly, I think I had heard someone say that uh, they thought it might have been Trinity Cross Blueberry. And the thing that I thought when I heard that was, what makes you say Blueberry? Like, as in, like, was there, to your recollection, was there a clone of Trinity Cross Blueberry that also went around? There, there was, there was some, there was some accidental breedings with Trinity, and there was a few intentional stuff that was done. Um, you know, and I. I don't, I can't really say about the original Trinity Blueberry, but I do have friends that lived up there then and said that they got it uh, semi-often, so I do know that it existed. Um, what it looked like and how close it was, I couldn't say. But I do think that that Trinity cut that exists, I do think it's really tasty smoke. It's oily in a weird way. Um, it burns really nice. It's got a really nice potent buzz. Uh, I would classify it as really good old school, you know, where maybe it's not as visually appealing, you know, for today's market. But in terms of like uh, how it burns and how it smokes and how it feels once you're smoking it, I am a big fan. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, as a follow up, I'd love to ask you, you often hear people say that the Humboldt Snow could be a sister to the Trinity. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I have uh, been lucky enough to try Humboldt Snow many years ago, some imported weed to Australia from what I believe and my experience was a very reputable connection in the States. So, you know, I don't have too much reason to doubt it wasn't real. But from my memory, it was a very different plant to the sort of nug of Trinity I got from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, have you tried the Humboldt Snow? Do you think there is any relation? Oh, yeah, I have it. Um, so that's a good story. It, and it, and it, it, it really goes to show how different crews can call things different names. Okay. Because like I was saying before, that same group of friends that I met at Oregon country fair that were growing the Trinity, they also grew the snow. Okay. And to them, uh, it was Eugene snow or Oregon snow. Right. That's what they called it. Uh, and to them, it was from there. So if you got it in Humboldt, uh, like CSI got it, it was Humboldt snow. If you got it in Eugene, it was probably Eugene snow. Um, it actually I know the people um, there. was I won't say their names, but there was a boyfriend, girlfriend who drove out from Florida to Oregon with that cut in their car. And in Florida, it was called the skunk five. So that cut has gone from Skunk 5 to Snow, Eugene Snow, Oregon Snow, and Humboldt Snow, just depending on who you got it from and where you got it and what era you got it in. What a life it's lived. <laughs> yeah, and it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, I mean, you can talk about, there's a bunch of strains, we don't need to get off on a big tangent, but 
you know, I'm sure some people back in the day called the puck the hash plant. And some people then called it the puck. And then some people called it the skelly. And then some people called it the skelly hash plant, right? And so, and you get different groups that'll argue with each other over like what's the name and what's the bullshit name that came later. Um, but that's just because cannabis groups are kind of isolated from each other until the internet and the forums came around. And so, you know, we're, we're good at giving things nicknames. And so sometimes names take a life of their own. And if you got snow and Humboldt, it was probably, I mean, I think CSI, I can't remember and I'm going to butcher it. Um, but he would, he would drive the snow up to Portland back in the day and they would take it as some totally different name. I just, I didn't mention like super something. Oh, okay. I'd have to ask him. I don't want to misspeak because it's not popping into my head, but it was, it was like the guy that he gave it to sold it totally under some different name. And it was incredibly popular under that name in the Portland area in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Wow. So, um, it's definitely not related to the Trinity. The only thing that you can say that it's related from is it came from the same general smoking, glass blowing, Grateful Dead hippie circles in Oregon. Yeah. Okay. That's the commonality. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's the commonality that like it's spread from there. So often people would would probably see people that had both. Yeah. Right. But Trinity came from Trinity County and uh, snow came from Florida. Huh. There you go. Worlds apart almost. Very, yeah. Very different. Okay. Okay. I wanted to, to loop back to one more strain you mentioned earlier before we, we stopped lingering because I could honestly talk about these all day. But you mentioned you got to try the Shoreline Skunk from uh, High and Lonesome. And I had grew out a Shoreline Skunk S1 many, many years ago back when I was not very enlightened about cannabis at all. I was just sort of, you know, stumbling my way through seed banks. And uh, this one was from the Devil's Harvest crew. And I've come to learn a bit more information about those guys as time has gone by. And sort of you get mixed reviews about them, sometimes uh, negative. But this plan I grew from them was very interesting. It was It's truly one of the most memorable terpene profiles I've ever smelt. A very metallic sort of skunk aroma. What's your thoughts on the shoreline? Do you think it's going to make a comeback? And does the real clone have that sort of metallic aspect to it? I think it has a, a bit of a metallic taste. Um, I am definitely not the shoreline expert by any means uh, because I am a very, very, I, you know, I only even really tried it recently, to be honest. Um, and that's kind of interesting because you know, I, you have a, I have a wide variety of friends all over the country and in various places, but it doesn't mean, even though you might talk to them a lot about various stuff that you get to try all their weed all the time. Right. Uh, and especially like for some of these clone holders or Bodie or CSI or this or that, it's not like these guys are growing out just rooms of head stash so that you, you can, tr they have the real thing, but like most of the time when they're growing it, they're breeding with it or something like that. So there's not only, it's not like there's like plethora of flower floating around of all these rarities all the time. So, um, shoreline seems to come out of Texas and it's spread around. It, it's very much nineties weed and that just the way that it looks, it definitely seems like it has some kind of skunk with something else in it aspect. Um, and it's one of those things that it's been something that high and lonesome has held on to for a long time. And he sort of spread it around our friend group a bit. 
and um, it people really like it. It's it's different. Uh, one of the aspects that that happened in the last fifteen years is that all these things that happened in terms of popularity, every time a strain got popular, everyone crossed everything to it, right? So there's a lot of OG, there's a lot of stuff that has OG in it. There's a lot of stuff that has cookie in it. There's a lot of stuff that has Skittles or Cushmints or, or, you know, or sour or, or diesels or this or that or whatever. But some of these older things that had their heyday before that mixing they sort of stand alone and they give you a really good idea of how diverse weed used to be. Right. Um, because before like the internet and before popularity and before like waves of stuff started happening, there used to be a lot less weed. And so almost all weed sold, which meant that a lot of diverse and nice weed would stick around. Most named clones have been really bad for diversity, I will say. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I like that. Because what happens is, is like, and I'll, and I'll go back to like, I've talked about it a bunch, but I'll go back to like, let's say it's 04 and you're having a hard time selling your ends and your neighbor is like, dude, I've got this purple Urkel and I swear to God, if I give you cuts, my guy will take every bit that you have. And so that guy stops growing what he was growing and he grows the Urkel because it's easy. And that works, right? And then Urkel lessens in popularity and Sour Diesel becomes big. And so that guy gets Sour Diesel and drops the Urkel. And then he finds out that Kush is going for crazy digits and he gets a Kush and he drops the Diesel and he grows some Kush and so on and so forth. And But what was that guy growing before the Purple Urkel? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, fully. It's uh, it, it's sort of an endless cycle, isn't it? So it's so what's happened in the last say 20, 15 or twenty years as named strains have become really popular, they've dominated what people breed with, and they've dominated what's been on the market. So a lot of times it ends up being the same thirty to forty cuts all blended together in these different ways, and things like Trinity and things like Snow and things like shoreline that we just mentioned or you know they all tie back to that previous era before that really started happening and so as a result of that you can see a lot of things that have a certain sameness to them and then you go back to before that started happening and you're like oh man that shoreline it's got a different thing to it it's got a different buzz it's got this different kind of flavor profile that's neat and I think that so there's been positives to like popularity, but there's also negatives as far as diversity goes. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, I was going to ask you this question later, but it feels like it's a good spot to sort of put it in. But I wanted to sort of get your take on like, how do you how do you sort of reconcile the differences between current popularity versus older popularity? And I guess I'm thinking specifically in terms of like the zeitgeist and maybe to give you an example Let's say in the early 2000s, C99, NL5 Haze were being grown by everyone. Super, super popular strains. But if you talk to people nowadays about like what's the real heady strains from back then they wish they had, they, they rarely ever mention either of those two. And it's, you know, maybe things like the puck and things that weren't necessarily the, the talk of the town at the time. But retrospectively, we're really interested in them. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, do you think if we look at the current situation, the current popular strains, you know, 
is is Cushmints, is Skittles, do you think in 10, 20 years' time, people will be looking back being like, man, I wish I had them? Or will it be some more niche thing that maybe flies a bit under the radar at the moment? Yeah. You know, it's. I mean, it's always hard to predict the future, but I can talk a bit about the differences because they are real. Um, so back in the day, uh, in the 90s or in the early 2000s or, you know, maybe even through like before Instagram and social media really, really kicked off. I would say that, you know, most of the what we would call elite. OK, it's not like everyone thought it was elite. It's just that like enough people enjoyed it that it gained a reputation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so like most elites, whether they, whether you want to call it, whether the puck or the NL five Hayes or the, what we would call the chem 91 these days, uh, or the Kush or sour diesel, they gained popularity. They gained a group of people that thought it was amazing and then that started to spread. And then the more it spread, more people agreed with them. And then it became desirable. And then so most elites happened organically. Right. Where today, modern marketing has very much so hit cannabis. There was no burner in the 90s. Right. There was no, you know, and, and what I mean by that is like there was no hype people. There, there was no professional photographers like making the weed look incredible with perfect lighting, you know, and rotating the bud on this thing. And you, so you can see now where now that you have legal cannabis, everybody needs elites and everybody needs fire, right? They're trying to sell you something. So as a result of that, you have a bunch of people pushing a bunch of things that they want to be elite because they want to make new money and they want it to be new hype, Right. But it's because it's not being developed really organically, a lot of them don't have the staying power that the ones of old do. Right? Imagine, you know, uh, and so I think a lot of those old elites, they've, they've stead, you know, they stood the test of time. Uh, and, but even, even still, some of them, like some of the older ones, like I think maybe their best use is breeding material these days. Uh, I, you know, I am not even a fan of everything that's old, right? Like I think the, the pucks children are, and grandchildren are on average quite a bit nicer than the puck itself. So sure. I think the puck is valuable because it comes from the eighties. And so whatever the genetics are that tie into that ties into a, a very like pre pre era of cannabis, you know? Um, and I think that's important to like put into modern genes and spread that around and keep that DNA going. Um, but you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in my jar of favorites. Uh, not even though I think that some of the hybrids that have been made with it are really nice. Yeah. Let me, let me quickly jump in and digress for just two seconds. People are going to kill me if I don't ask which of the puck hybrids would you be into? Like, Puck meets New World Indica meets New Sativa. Like, what's the general combination that would pique your curiosity? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think, I think blending Puck into different Indicas and then using those in whatever way you want is probably the best way to go. Um, you know, the Puck is, I mean, compared to most modern things, I, you probably agree with this. The Puck is pretty ugly. Yeah. 
and hard to grow. It's hard to grow. It's old. It's ugly. It's not very frosty. It doesn't visually have what most people like. Um, I had, for me, it's basically like, I would consider it like an indoor strain. Uh, it doesn't like being out. It doesn't like the sun very much. The only time I was able to get it to do well in the sun is if I shaded it, uh, even more so than like in a greenhouse, I had to shade it again, you know? Um, but you know, if it's from the late eighties, like whatever genetics, like I said, it ties to those genetics are worth keeping around and spreading into things. And so, you know, there's various people that have done some work with the puck, but it, that kind of thing is a little bit of a labor of love because, you know, cookies and some of these different things, like the puck doesn't have most of what the modern consumer wants in wheat. And it's, it's slow growing and it's ugly. So it's not like even people, you know, that have it, it's not like those people are bumping out rooms of puck. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's correct. Right. So most people don't have access to it. So it's good that they're, it's being bred with, um, because I, because like I said before, who knows how important the genes in it are. Um, and it definitely ties, you know, before Kush, before sour diesel, before cookie, before a lot of these things. So it's important to keep some of those old genes percolating around. Um, but if I was going to go for some old school, like eighties weed, I think the NL five hazes that have existed from that era are way nicer pot as far as like my personal smoke than puck. Yeah, look, I have to agree with you, and and now that you've said it, it makes me realize, you know, it's very rare that someone actually has a bud of the puck to offer me, you know, and I've probably more often been offered a hybrid, which makes sense given everything we just said. And you just mentioned NL5 haze. I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of people have been talking specifically in the context of you about the uh, PNW dog shit. Do you think it's an NL5 haze? Give us the lowdown on it. So. I'll give you the the brief history that I know and that this is funny too, because, you know, when I, when I do my, when I do the chats or whatever, I try really hard to talk about what I think I know. And then like, what's my personal subjective opinion. And sometimes that opinion gets people so upset, right? Uh, because people are married to certain stories or whatever. And, and, and talking about weed and talking about history, um, can be a little dicey in that regard, right? So I used to think that the uh, the dog shit was an old NL5 haze variety from the early 90s. And the reason why I thought that was basically the way it made me feel and the way it smelled and tasted, okay? Um, the history of it is a little muddled, but it seems like it came in the early 90s, uh, it, it popped up in Minneapolis or Northern Minnesota. Um, and, and it was called electric boogaloo. Um, and then it got brought out to, uh, Oregon and it got changed. And I don't want to be misquoted here, but I believe there was a guy that had it, that had the cat piss. And so he decided that the two strains he was going to have was the cat piss and the dog shit. <laughs> so he changes the, he changes the name from electric boogaloo to and i think even before electric boogaloo uh my buddy was telling me that at first they just called it the sativa <laughs> right so it might have gone from the sativa to electric boogaloo to uh dog shit and i'll say for the record that electric boogaloo is one of my all-time favorite 
cannabis names. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I personally think it's like, that's like a, it's just an amazing, amazingly cool name. Uh, so, and I, and I definitely dislike, and you would never ever in a million years in modern, modern weed name something, the dog shit. Uh, cause we're in like the dessert, uh, evoke images era. But anyway, it ended up, I think by 93, 94, 95 ish, it ended up in Oregon in select groups and it's got changed. It's name got changed to dog shit. And most people that have it, have it through those connections. And so dog shit, it became, and I have changed my mind on what I think the dog shit is. And I'll throw it out there that this is absolutely pure speculation for me and has zero proof by any means. So take it for what you will. But it is to me a lot prettier than any NL five haze phenol I've seen. Sure. Uh, and you know, NL5 Haze to me is like the most successful hybrid ever made. And there's probably eight or 10 living examples of it, even still today from the early nineties, right? Yeah. A5s and C5s and there's PIF and there's, you know, the black, the, the black, what some people call Cuban black. Uh, there's a lot of different phenos of it. So there's a lot of, there's the cough, uh, from Connecticut that ended up in Colorado. So we're blessed in that regard that there's a bunch of them and they're all to some degree kind of ugly grown. Well, the, the dog shit is beautiful. And so I have this sneaking suspicion because the only two things that Neville sold in that era, which is the late eighties and early nineties. And then at Sensi that had haze in it consistently was silver pearl by haze and NL five haze. And I, have been leaning towards maybe the it could have some it could be some silver it could be some silver haze yeah i mean that makes sense right like the photos piff posts of the pearl he's got that they look really pretty yeah and so you know silver pearl for people that don't know is the nl5 cut cross to early pearl and and skunk yeah that's what that's what silver pearl is and then neville took that and crossed that to the same male of haze that nl5 got crossed to and those were his two haze offerings both at the seed bank and at sensi they they were both sold for years um so it fits the timeline and i honestly like looking at all those straight nl5 haze f1s like they just look a little uglier and a little weird and maybe that early pearl on that skunk makes the the uh the you know the uh, dog shit look prettier and it's certainly a little faster than some of those other hazes but i still get the effect and i still get a very similar nose to what i consider nl5 haze to be um it's just much nicer looking weed and it's a little faster yeah i love it it's a great sativa it's one of my favorites i really enjoy the dog shit a whole bunch uh and i will say that um my buddy uh bittersweet um, who I should mention, uh, the shoreline that I smoked at that party was actually from him, even though it was through high and lonesome, uh, he grew it. He also brought some, um, some electric boogaloo, uh, and it was a party favorite. Uh, most people that, you know, most heads when they smoke it, they really like it. Uh, it, it tends to be a fan favorite. So, um, it's, it's an, it's a nice strain. It takes 12 weeks. 13 weeks, maybe something along those lines. Um, but it, it makes nice, it makes nice flower 
smells really good. It's got a really good, uplifting, energetic uh, buzz. Makes you happy. Um, it's pretty, I almost call it like like old school 90s weed in the sense that it's it's like if you grow it right, it's very lime green with uh, this certain shade of hairs that just reminds me of getting like 90s hydro, hydro what I used to call hydro weed. Um, it's got just this very cool old school look. Uh, it's, it's an old favorite of mine. And, uh, I, I would love for that one to become, um, ragingly popular because I think it deserves it. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely. Even, even just to, to represent, uh, the sativa sort of side of the market a bit more. It's, uh, it's cool. And I have to admit, I've never tried it. You've, uh, you've really got me keen. So there you go. I'll have to, I'll have to keep my ears and my eyes open for it. It's a, it's a manageable sativa that yields nice, that yields nice looking nuggets. Um, it doesn't take, I mean, it takes, like I said, 12, 13 weeks, but that's not forever. Uh, you know, so it, uh, it's really accessible and yeah, most of my friends that have grown it or tried it, uh, it's become in their favorites too. So I think it's one of those ones that could be a lot more popular than it is if people had access to it. Yeah, beautiful stuff. I'm going to look for some hybrids. I was meant to ask you this uh, last question, but, you know, we're still sort of in that general talking point. But we were talking about, you know, the puck and the utility of like having those older world genetics being incorporated into modern stuff. And I've seen even some of the, the more hype guys talking about trying to make some hybrids. Like, you know, I'm talking like Connected California and, uh, you know, Chris Compound. I swear I've seen them talk about the dog shit. So, Maybe that'll work its way in. But what I wanted to ask you specifically was, I've been really excited by seeing some of the work being done by Full Power Selections and the whole crew that Irizen is behind and working with. And some of the stuff they've been posting about collecting from Afghanistan, Pakistan, India looks really phenomenal. And I wonder... Do you think these modern Afghanis will be able to inject some fresh blood into the genetics in the way that, say, the puck did? Or do you think that it's like it's just not the same? And even though it might look old world, it's maybe not quite. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, so I could throw a couple, uh, you know, let's put it this way. In a world where everything is... GMO, Cushmints, Gelato, Skittles, and combinate and Cush and combinations thereof, right? Adding in genetics that are totally different than that is very beneficial, right? Um, you don't want to get too inbred on things. Now, working with land races, it can be beneficial, but it's not going to be universally beneficial. A lot of it's going to suck, and that's just part of breeding. And pe the part that people don't want to accept is that Breeding is a lot of failure, right? One of the most common things that happened to people in the 80s when they first started breeding sativas uh, and indicas together on a more consistent basis was that they realized that a lot of these indicas that come from like this extremely dry, arid, cool climate in Afghanistan rotted like crazy when bred into sativas. And so... One of the reasons why like certain cuttings and certain lines became so prevalent in 80s and 90s cannabis uh, for indicas was because it was actually really difficult for those old timers to find indicas that didn't screw up what they had, right? So 
it's a, there's a good thing in that it's totally different genetics. But when you work with land races, whether it's sativa or indica from anywhere, it's a lot of work to uh, and, and at times to get them to a level that would be acceptable to us, right? Um, and then the other thing you got to remember about these indicas is that it took us some time because, you know, sativas are made to be smoked for the most part, right? Um, and the cultures we were getting it from were growing it for smoke, whether it was Mexican or Colombian or Thai or whatever. But most of these indicas that are coming from, say, some of these groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan that are collecting them, um, the plant itself is just the carrier for the hash. It's just the carrier for the resin. And they're, and they're resin farmers, right? They don't care what it smokes like. They don't care what the flower tastes like or how it burns. Um, they're there to grow that plant and then to extract the resin off it and to turn it into various kinds of hash, you know? And so for, for us, who are primarily flower smokers, um, we're going to have to convert that into our needs, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they don't know if they don't know if the flower tastes like shit. True. True. And if they're growing it in the Hindu Kush mountains and it's bone dry there and it's arid and you take it to California or Oregon or somewhere where it's more humid and it rots like crazy, you wouldn't even see that in Afghanistan. So I think it's valuable what they're doing because for the most part with 20 years or, or more of war going on over there, that involved Americans, Afghanistan and Pakistan have been sort of kind of like cut off for quite a while, right? Um, there was people that went there in the set like um, like Neville did and the and the Dronkers and and Sam Skunkman. There was people that went in the in the seventies on the hippie hashish trail, um, and then you know once 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 the wars got really crazy and extended. You know, that kind of the world is, has been a little bit cut off, if you could say, right? And that that actually might have saved it. You know, I was we were talking to on uh, one of the podcasts that Matt and I did with uh, this guy from Canada from Federation Seeds. Oh, yeah. And he he was talking about how he spent 10 years in uh, in Spain or maybe eight years, but a long time, a significant chunk of time in Spain. And in his opinion... Um, there's almost no Moroccan weed left in Morocco. Um, it's all Dutch weed. It's all super silver haze and amnesia haze and tangy and various things like that. And it's close enough to Spain that all this genetics started going over there and people started saying, hey, I'll pay more money for this, this stuff. Turn this into hash for us. And he told me that they've had friends going over there that have connections that are smugglers asking like the mountain villagers and like the the tribal people, like, where's the old Moroccan hash strains? And they can't even find them. Mm. Right. Yeah. So it might be good. It, I don't I don't want to say war is good because obviously, like, it's terrible for the people involved. But in terms of preserving the genetics of Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, that might have helped. They, they haven't been invaded by Dutch genetics. They haven't been like, even in, I mean, I've talked to people where they say that like, even by the late nineties, um, most of the Jamaican weed gave way from pure Jamaican into like white widow and blueberry and Dutch hybrids. Right. 
um, because they just wanted shorter, faster, quicker, easier things to grow that were more marketable for the market they were going to, which was America. So I, I do think that there's a lot of scrolling back to what you were saying. I do think there's positive stuff to these people going around, going to these traditional farmers in Afghanistan and Pakistan and the different regions, collecting and preserving their seeds. I do think that's super important. Uh, I think it'll probably take some time and some effort and some energy. Uh, you know, for instance, I have a buddy of mine who I won't shout out on the thing, but I have a buddy of mine that um, has what he calls uh, this Kandahar. Okay. And um, he has a friend of his that was in the military and was over in Afghanistan and ended up making friends with villagers. And he brought back a bunch of seed and gave it to his mom who gave it to my friend. Right. And so he's breeding with this Kandahar now, which is total land race from Afghanistan. You know, uh, who knows how many generations of farmers it goes back. And so far, everything he breeds it to, it herms like crazy. Oh, so um, it just goes to show that, like, taming some land races, you know, and and getting what you want out of them is more work than a lot of breeders are willing to do. But I do think it's cool that there's a whole hash culture over there. And so there's a whole ecosystem that is supporting a lot of those traditional genetics in that part of the world. Yeah, wholeheartedly. I, I really love to see that uh, Irizan and the crew are, are trying to get some money back in the hands of, you know, the guys who have preserved the land races for years. Because something that has very much lasted with me was a comment he made about how you know, you sometimes see modern breeders getting up in arms about people breeding with their stuff. And I think a notable example of that is uh, Fletcher from Archive has been on the record of being not thrilled with some people breeding with dosy doe males and the like. But Irizan made the comment that, you know, these land race farmers, they've never even had the opportunity to get mad at people making money off their work, let alone maybe even making money themselves. And I thought, you know, that's a valid point. You know, we should try to support these indigenous cultures uh, where possible because they truly, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? It's not like we, it's not like every breeder out there just found their plants in the wild and can say, yeah, I don't, I don't know if thanks to anyone. <laughs> well, I mean, I, well, for, for one, I a hundred percent agree with you. Um, for two, uh, not just to defend Fletch a bit in that regard is that I think his point wasn't necessarily so much that nobody should be using dosido, but that people should be taking their time and their energy to create stuff as well, right? And not just because what's happening is is as as anything becomes popular, it gets bred into everything else, right? And then people should be developing their own dosidos, right? And developing their own type of stuff. And I do think that in breeding, especially because breeding has changed a lot, you know, Instagram, when I was doing most of my breeding, there wasn't even an outlet to, to, to move seats, right? It's really only been the last eight to 10 years with the advent of IG and forums and all these different things going on that a lot of little breeders have had their day in the sun. The, uh, a lot more difficult. I mean, you could do private breeding, but selling it and was a lot was a lot harder. And so what happens is is that what you've probably noticed is that you know one of the most common things is people get famous or get associated with a certain cut or a certain family or a certain group of seeds, and then they make a seed company. Yeah, 
right? Because they're associated with that. And then they make a bunch of hybrids and stuff and work based off what they're already known for. Um, and so I don't want to like name drop or anything like that. Cause that, I don't want to call out anybody over anybody else, but there's plenty of people out there for a long time that like, if you want to use this cut, I want half the seeds. Or if you want to use this in breeding, I want to be paid. And a lot of that went on behind the scenes and wasn't very well known, but there's lots of people that would really milk. If something got well known and famous and you wanted to use it, they would sell the cuttings for five or 10 or 15 grand a cutting, or they would demand you, Oh, you want to breed with the seed? Well, I get 50% of them or you got to give me 50% of the proceeds. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and so, um, but you're right in that all those people that demand that it's not like, I mean, eventually it would become like multi-level marketing or something where they're not kicking any points back to who they got. It. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good perspective. <laughs> Everyone's in MLM. You know, like they're not like, they're like, you should pay me, but I'm not going to kick any of that up to the people that like, I didn't breed it. I didn't grow it. I didn't even crack the seed. I just got it early enough and I held it and I marketed it. Right. Um, and you know, I mean, I could throw out names out there, but it's like, then whoever I named would just get upset at me. Right. So I'll just, I'll just say the general gist is there's been lots of cuttings that have been hoarded for value and the land race people, uh, and you know, even people like Neville or, you know, Sam will tell you that everything has his shit in it. Yeah. Neville would tell you before he passed that most people in Holland ripped him off. <laughs> right. Right. And, and it's the same story today, right? Like, you know, people do, uh, you know, there's no, there's no licensing really going on in cannabis. So it's like, if the cut gets out, anybody can do whatever they want with it. And it's just the honor system. Yeah. Right. And you can try public shaming or whatever, but I mean, you know, um, you know, people were, and you, you figure it out. And at various times, people that claim to be the first person that had something and they get very famous for it and time goes on and you realize that they just got lucky enough to get it. Early. So more power to the farmers getting something going on. Now, hopefully those, and I'm not trying to diss those guys either, but hopefully that's just not like a selling point for them and they don't kick money down to the farmers either. Um, because that's the honor system as well, right? Uh, it's not like you're buying it directly from the farmer when it comes to that land race stuff. You have to hope that they are paying good money for the seed or they are kicking down some of the benefit of selling to Westerners to those Afghani or those Pakistani, uh, you know, farming, farming families. No doubt. I, uh, I, I trust you as in these, he's passing on as he says he is. And a quick caveat, you know, not trying to have a go at Fletcher. It's just a talking point. Still love for you to come. <laughs> oh no, I, that's why I didn't men I could have mentioned four or five people you know, like, but I just didn't because I was like, oh man, at least two of them will get mad at me. <laughs> uh, but, but it, but it's the truth. You know, some people like one of the, one of the ways to make money in weed was like, was you get some cut early and it, there's a huge demand for it. And, you know, some people are hoarding it. And then there's that one guy that's like, I'm willing to sell this cut for top dollar mm. or I'm willing to make seeds with this cut, or I'm going to be the first person that goes on a forum and talks about it. And then I'm going to get famous for it. Right. And sometimes it can take a long time for the nuance of what exactly happened to come out. 
Um, and, but that's, I mean, you've probably seen it, right? Like how many people have you interviewed and you interviewed them because they're closely associated with a famous cut or a famous line and you want to get the story of it from them and then what they did with it. Mm. Yeah. Regularly, regularly. It's pretty, it's one of the most common ways to get famous in weed, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And look, I mean, uh, again, peace and love to to Fletcher. I I know he uh he doesn't necessarily want to come on the show, but again, uh, kudos for the work. Wh- while we're talking about the the land race stuff, it you made a really good point that you know they're not necessarily growing this stuff for flour; they're growing it for concentrate. And I would love to springboard into you know, are you are you a flour guy? Are you a concentrates guy? Do you lean more to one than the other? And and if you prefer one, what is it about the other? You know, because I'll I'll happily tell anyone, I don't really smoke concentrates because to be honest, my tolerance is kind of low and I just get fucked up. It's just that simple. <laughs> Where do you land? Yeah, I mean, I am a flour person, one hundred percent. You know, I it's not like I don't like hash. Um, but if I was forced to choose one or the other for eternity, I would absolutely choose flour. Um, and some of that is, is, you know, like the relationships with the plant or whatever concentrates are that just that they're concentrated. And so, you know, like when you're breeding and stuff like that and you're trying to sort out like, uh, I think when you're, when, when you breed and you're trying out different types of cannabis, um, keeping your tolerance at a flower level, uh, is important. Right. Um, and I have, I have thoughts on, on, and you know, this will, this will get everybody all, all tightened up or whatever. But for me, I just prefer when I get really baked on flour, I like that feeling more than I do off concentrates. Um, you know, I think flour is the purest way to smoke it. Right. Um, because it has, you're not altering it in any way other than heat. Yeah. Right. Where, you know, when you, when, you know, when you put it through BHO, when you put it through uh, water, when you put it through a, a freeze dryer, when you do all these different things to it, a lot of times that changes, that changes various aspects of, of the, the buzz or the flavor profile or anything like that. And so, you know, I, I also think that like modern hash is incredibly different than traditional hash. Like they're not similar at all, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the biggest reason is that most modern hash is single source. Yeah. Right. It's, it, you take one clone. Okay. Um, and you know, you grow that clone in a outdoor greenhouse or an indoor, whatever situation you do. And then you harvest it and you extract however you're going to extract it. But it's just that one genetic where most traditional hash is like a field of sisters. Yeah. 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 Yep. So think about like, think about the difference between like, you know, uh, you know, you like one Australian in the town you live, versus like the entire town and like the diversity contained within that, you know? So with cannabis, if you're getting a bunch of sisters, you're kind of getting a mix of, you know, THC percentages, (coughs) CBD, CBN, THCV, this, that, whatever else, 
And so we don't actually grow. Um, the biggest thing we have an advantage of over um, traditional hashish, I think, is purity. You know, obviously, there's a lot of pressure on those farmers to get weight and sell kilos. And so most of the best hash that comes from that region never leaves that region. And so, you know, if your experience with hash is hash that's been adulterated or hash that's had other funk pounded into it for more weight, um, most people, the hash they make at home is going to be a lot higher quality than the best quality traditional than they've had access to. But if you go to, say, Holland, where Holland obviously has a, a land connection to uh, Asia, um, Holland would get was a much more of a hash culture than a flower culture, right? And those guys over there that were growing a lot of those strains for the 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 um, the shops, the coffee shops, um, to to a man, almost all of them would sell the weed and they would buy the best hash they could find. Yes, all of them believe that the best grade of traditional hash from different regions in both taste and effect is superior to most of the modern flour that you grow. Um, and so, but as a result of like the hash revolution in America really happening in, I don't remember when nails and some of the like accoutrements that made actually hash smoking easier started happening and bangers started coming out. But I would say it was probably like 10 or 12 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe like late 2010, 2012, 2014, when we first started smoking BHO and stuff in the early 2000s, like even consuming it was a, was a big pain in the ass. Um, we didn't have all of the tools and all, you know, and all and the heated nails or the glass or, you know, the smoke pearls or the bangers or whatever name you want to add to all the stuff that you have now. There's this whole like wave of stuff that you use to smoke hash now. And that's all been developed over time. Right. And so, you know, they have, I think most hash is like, you know, does it taste good? Does it yield? Well, that's what they're after. Like you, you see people talking about washers or dumpers, right? That's all about how much weight it gives you. But there's a lot of really high quality strains that we were just talking about where like earlier in the show that they don't wash well. So therefore they would never get made into hash. Like, why would you and I don't I don't even know what shoreline washes, but let's say that you like absolutely adore shoreline, but it only washes three and a half percent where you get some other grapes and cream by Skittles and it washes six percent. Yeah. Right. The extractor is going to make a lot more money washing the stuff that yields more so the hash market in america is very is, is very much based on color look smell and weight mm. i now i didn't i didn't mention effect that's what i was gonna ask you know and and like i'm sure you've got a little more to follow up so i'll let you finish but just as a as a caveat do you think you can get like real sativa effects from a concentrate Sure. I mean, I, I, um, I've seen people, I've seen people smoke like really pure, like, uh, um, heads, you know, like basically pressed keef, uh, of like say Neville's haze in Holland and had one or two hits, like take them out and end their night. 
you know, uh, you can absolutely, you can absolutely get that, but you know, that, that would be like, we were talking earlier in the show, that would be as the market matures and demand for rarer or, you know, uh, certain, certain things becomes more valuable enough that it gets offered as a consumer product. Because if you, sativas are, are pretty rare, right? Yeah. Think about how rare, you know, imagine if you start looking around and you're like, I want to get a really nice few grams of pure sativa hash. That's even rarer. Yeah. God, uphill battle. You know, that's, that's, that's even rarer to get. So it's, I think that I'm not, you know, I don't have any issue with hash or anything like that. And there's plenty of people that like all they smoke is hash. And there's, there's now there's a divide in the candy community over there's hash people and weed people. And there's some differences. And sometimes people make fun of each other or whatever. I'm not here to like, say that like my preferences are better than anybody else's as far as what I like, but I like smoking joints and I like taking bong hits. Um, a flower. Uh, that's what seems to be, that's what seems to me to give the best effect uh, of what I like. Uh, do I like, do I smoke hash sometimes? Um, you know, sure. Do I like certain kinds of hash? Yes. Do I think a lot of midzy weed is getting turned into hash and people are saying that it's amazing because of how it looks? Yes. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Look, I should have, I should have asked a second ago, but you mentioned how, you know, these early Dutch growers, they would sell their crop, go and get some hash. And I think that a part of that probably has to do with the fact that they blend with tobacco so heavily over there. And it raises the more modern talking point of the past few ego clashes, the concentrate sections have actually been won by blends, people where they're blending two or three strains. And I remember when I spoke with Bodhi many years ago, he made this statement, you know, that we really haven't explored the realm of blending all that much as a community. What's your thoughts on blending? I mean, say, as a starting point, the Dutch using the tobacco, is it sort of a necessary evil in a sense? But also more modernly, do you think we can expect to see more adventuring into the realm of blending? Now we're talking about uh, blending of different strains, or blending of tobacco or both. Yeah, I guess both, because as a, as a whole thing, you know, and, and I mean, Bodhi even referenced the idea of um, in other psychedelics, they, they blend different, you know, sort of sacred plants. I forget the names of the ones he mentioned, but, um, you know, some of them are like made from dried out succulents and stuff. And it's real common in indigenous cultures to blend tobacco and that. And I'm wondering, what's your thoughts? Obviously, a big topic. Uh, it is a big topic. You know, I think that... Uh, some of it is what's normal to you is what's normal to you, right? So you are a product to some degree of the culture that you grow up in. Okay. Uh, and so as a result of that, like how you smoke and how you consume cannabis is based upon that culture, right? <clears throat> so if you're growing up in Holland and most people are blending it with tobacco, that's how you're going to learn how to smoke when you start getting into smoking. And so that's, what's going to be normal to you. If you came up in America where we didn't do that very much, the opposite would be true. And you would be like, Oh, I smoke, you know, um, I just smoke pure, pure flower. I will say that definitely when we first went to Amsterdam in the nineties, 
um, they thought we were nuts for rolling joints of pure weed. <laughs> uh, and I, I had to get a little drunk, to be honest, to be in some of the coffee shops. Because if you go in winter, where it's kind of cold and nasty out, if you're in some little coffee shop and there's like six or seven spliffs going on that like are mostly tobacco with like a hash snake down the middle, that's so much smoke. <laughs> and so if you're not a tobacco smoker, it's literally like a haze of tobacco with a little bit of weed mixed in and it stinks and it's, it's pretty intense right now, you know, I think that tobacco and, and, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's a different drug too. So people get a, a zippiness from it. They get a different rush from it. And so people might associate like that buzz. I don't like tobacco, so I'm not going to be big into the blending thing. Um, but there are people around, around me who smoke spliffs. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a movement in the youth around here. They call them fifties, right? Where, They'll take American spirit tobacco and pack half a bong of American spirit and half a bong of flour and take bong rips of both. Huh. And they call them fifties and it's a big wave, you know? And so, yeah, I, I do think that that stuff is going to happen. People do blend drugs. Uh, people do blend, you know, things of that nature. Um, I don't like tobacco. And I also think that much like, you know, I was telling you just just a minute ago about how, you know, if you're a breeder, you're better off keeping your tolerance at a flower level so you can judge flower. Yep. I do think it's a lot harder to judge nuances if you're going to blend. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely. Right. Like, you know, I mean, take take wine for instance let's say that you want to you want to judge a nice merlot and you just like you drink the merlot but what if you add a little bit of zinfandel in it or you add a little bit of cabernet in it and you mix it all up right it's making it much harder for you to judge that thing by itself because there's other elements in there yeah it, it certainly does make it harder and also you know there's the the comment about being able to clearly um, analyze and break down the flavor profile. You know, I think that undeniably is also a, a muddled effect. I mean, I, I will say too, that like going back to like when, um, when like BHO and, and, you know, that kind of thing first became popular, it allowed a lot of strains that were not very potent to be acceptable to people. Right. So to give you an example, there was a point in time when it was very difficult to even give away Cali O in California, right? Because it was just that pure orange flavor. It most orange stuff is not very potent. So it was very light high. It was very one note. Okay. And it kind of fell out of favor. And then Tangi came out right when the BHO thing really started. And all of a sudden you could take this like, 10 or 12 or 14 percent tangy that wasn't very potent and didn't get you ripped and you could make some bho of it and all of a sudden it's 85 percent thc and it works mm. and it tastes really strong so it took a lot of like light weed that was kind of like midzy in effect and it concentrated the effect to where it was at an acceptable level 
Yeah, 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 definitely. It was it was a part of the way it came around, didn't it? And I mean, you know, not to change the topic quickly, but I mean, we're not even changing the topic really, but you mentioned Calio and I did want to talk about you because I was thinking to myself, it sort of fit in with that category of, you know, when we were talking about the train wreck and the blue dream and the grey pape, it was sort of, you know, a little before that era, but still in that time. How do you feel about Calio as a smoke these days, objectively, you know, do you think... Yeah, what I've heard is, you know, it, it, it's great flavor, but it's maybe not exactly very strong by modern standards. What's your thoughts on it? Uh, I mean, I would agree with that 100%. Uh, whether or not, you know, great flavor is obviously subjective. I would say that the flavor is pretty one note, right? So if you like strong flavor of oranges on your tongue, it's going to give you that in spades. It doesn't have a lot of nuance to it. It's very one note and very forward. It's also um, because it's old. Uh, it's you know it has it has a lot lower THC percentage in general, and its effect is pretty light. So what happens to people with a lot of the citrus, in my opinion, whether it's orange citrus or lemon um, or you know that type of thing, is that it's almost like a good palate cleanser, right? Like eating like pickled ginger at a sushi bar or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not something that you'd want for your main course. And it's not like, you know, you're like, okay, I'm on vacation. I'm on this island and I have this huge jar of Cali O. You're not going to be that stoked. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's good as a, as a change of pace. It's good as a palate cleanser. It's good to smoke for a little bit. But the problem is, is that almost universally, most people are like, that can't be my daily driver. Right. Like there's there's people that um, there's people that there's weed out there that ends up being people's daily driver. Right. Like for me, I could smoke the dog or the sour diesel or, you know, there's I, I can go on and on. But there's there's certain ones where it's like if I had to smoke that every day, I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's ones that after a few puffs or after a few days, you like not only are you like sort of bored by it because it has like a, a short or a flat or a quick duration as far as the high, but a lot of times certain things plateau. Do you get that experience where like certain strains get you high every day and they, that, that potency carries through on a daily basis and you get the same like strong effect. And then certain things you might get high the first day or two, but after three or four days of smoking it, the high really levels out and it's kind of flat and uninteresting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I kind of think Cali O is like, uh, it's like fashion, right? Like it goes into fashion for a few years and then everyone gets super over it and then it falls off the face of the earth and then it comes back in a different form. Um, to me, the Tangy movement was basically like an improved Cali O. Just those same orange terps, you know? Well, what, what's your thoughts on, like, the Forbidden Fruits and the Tropicana Cookies? Because to me, it seems very much in that same realm. Would you say that those are improvements or still just in the same vein? Um, you know, there's things that I actually like about Forbidden Fruit. I think it's got some cool genetics in it in the sense that <clears throat> it can really throw a lot of nice buds in low light conditions. I grew it once in a greenhouse where I didn't even put it in until the 15th of September. And the, where that greenhouse was, it only got about five or six hours of light at that late in the year because the sun w went behind the hill. And most things needed significantly more light in order to form up well. 
and the forbidden fruit formed huge colas all over it like no big deal like it got that five hours of light and that was all it needed and it was and it's beautiful it's purple it's extremely visually attractive and it smells basically like one note cali o and it also is not very potent so i like i said i can i can i can have some of that as some pickled ginger um but i'm not going to be eating it a bunch of it or eat you know daily it's it's pretty it's pretty one note for me i like that analogy you know the um the the jar of coffee in between smelling colognes yeah well i mean when we were at that event you get to a point where it's like how many jars of weed can you smell before you need to take a break because you've kind of blown your sensors out yeah hugely sensory overloads a real thing right yeah so you were just saying like smell some coffee you know like there's like that's why i said palate cleanser because there's things that can kind of like wash away what was in there and reset your palate so that you can try something else and that would be that would be my my orange um the only the only citrus i really like is I like citrus that has a creaminess or a sweetness on the back end. The citrus that's like extremely astringent and citrus in one note, I get bored of that super fast. Um, it, the citrus that has some softness or some, you know, some sweetness behind it and maybe some other elements that come through, that to me is more interesting. But I think there's a reason why citrus comes and goes in the community because most people end up and getting bored of it. <laughs> yeah, look, people will bug me if I don't ask. Any strains immediately jump to mind that fit that criteria you mentioned of sort of more appealing to you with the creamy sweetness? Um, yeah, you know, there's a gosh, now I'm going to be there was a there was a cut we had. I lost it in the 17 fires. I have some seeds of it still. There was a cut we called the tangerine. Um, and it it was very citrus, but it had this this sweetness on the back end that's sort of like it's almost like in food you know when you have something and you need something to like cut the flavor and add some depth right um that's what i mean so like when i smoke lemon tree it smells like someone just sprayed lemon cleaner in my mouth and that's good for one or two hits but at the end of the day i'm like ah, it's not so much for me um and so I can't think besides that tangerine, I can't think of, you're not going to get a bunch of depth on citrus from me. Uh, citrus is, um, I could, I could tell you something funny, right? That, uh, when we just had that event, uh, CSI brought a bunch of, uh, various seeds to give away to, to friends that were there. And at the end of the night, he dumped a bunch of stuff on the ground and just let people pick what they wanted. And the stuff that was left was all Calio hybrids. <laughs> there like, you go. Like out, out of the eight or ten or twelve packs that were that were left, and nobody grabbed at the end. It was all something by Calio. So there you have it, friends. What do you think? Massive shout out to Not So Dog for stopping by. I hope you guys come back for the next installment of this epic episode with Not So Dog. As usual, we want to give a massive shout out to all those who support the show. Huge shout out to the Patreon gang. We love you so much. They've heard this one a few weeks before you have at least. If you want to get early access to episodes, check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. 
Likewise, a huge shout out to our amazing sponsors. If you want to help support the show, please go check out our sponsors. It helps them. It helps us. Seeds here now. Best seed bank in the industry. Guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Why would you go anywhere else? Pulse sensors. Best sensors in the game. They've just launched their new unit, the Pulse Hub. An all-in-one integrated unit for you to keep your garden's parameters in check and pumping on all cylinders. Thank you so much, Pulse Sensors. You know I'm an organic head, guys. Don't ignore Organics Alive. They are truly one of the best in the game. Massive shout-out to Organics Alive. We love your products. Thank you so much for the support. And last but not least, Copa Biological Systems. All the best pest and predator technology. If you want to keep your garden happy, healthy, pest and pathogen free, check them out, guys. Apiparam, Spidex Vitals, two staples in any garden that's looking to be optimized and putting out the highest quality crop today. Huge thank you again, Copa Biological Systems. That just about does it for this episode, my friends. We'll see you for the next one. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you.